Josh. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to episode nine of Descent Magazine's uh, Belabored Podcast. We- oh, I remember when our podcast was still young. <laughs> now uh, we're getting old and boring. No, we're not boring. Um, so we're recording this this week as Josh is about to leave us for his escapades in Arkansas with the Walmart workers at the Walmart shareholders meeting. Um, we look forward to Josh's exciting reports from that next week. But for now, we're going to bring you some other news. So this week, most of you have probably noticed that street protests have been erupting in the country of Turkey. Um, they've been going on since last Friday. And former belabored guest Paul Mason, episode two. Available for free online. Available for free at DescentMagazine.org. Paul Mason has been reporting from Turkey for the last couple of days and wrote a piece um, on his blog at the BBC comparing the protests to the other things that he's covered from Tahrir Square to um, the uprisings in Greece to Occupy Wall Street um, and asked, is this the Turkish Tahrir? Well, not unless the workers join it. And shortly after that, one of the largest labor confederations in the country, um, the Public Workers Confederation, announced that they were going on a two-day quote-unquote warning strike in support of the actions and in response to what their statement called state terror implemented against mass protests across the country. Um, This is some 240,000 public sector workers in Turkey who are um, part of this confederation that's called the strike. So... Once again, we have no idea what's going to come of this uprising in Turkey, um, but it is interesting to see that, yes, the workers are, in fact, joining in. Last weekend on Saturday, there was an 18-mile march by workers and supporters in what is now a year-long strike against the Palermo's Pizza Company based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is a group of workers that I initially met when I was out in Wisconsin covering the recall election for Salon, and it's a story that, while it involves less than 200 workers or so, encapsulates so many of the good and bad trends that we see going on in the labor movement in the United States. So here you have a group of low-paid, overwhelmingly immigrant workers making frozen pizzas that you see all over the country, particularly at Costco. There is a workers' center, what you could call an alt-labor group, Vosas de la Frontera, which is a group that started out in many ways being seen as an immigrant rights group, but has been increasingly involved in workplace activism involving immigrant workers in partnership with existing unions. Vosis got involved organizing these workers around issues of safety and respect in the workplace. Workers told me they felt like they were treated like machines. Then this alt-labor group Vosis teamed up with the AFL-CIO and the United Steelworkers Union. They went and tried to get voluntary recognition from the company. Most of the workers signed up saying that they wanted union recognition and collective bargaining when the company refused. In short order, over the period of a couple days, the workers filed charges with the National Labor Relations Board. The workers filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board asking for a union election. And workers received notification and warning that due to their immigration status, supposedly, they might no longer get to work at the company. So you have, along with a story there about alt-labor, about the intersection of immigrant organizing and labor organizing, you have the intersection of 
as one organizer said to me, the brokenness of immigration law and the brokenness of labor law, the first test of a memorandum of understanding between ICE, the Immigration Enforcement Agency, and the Department of Labor, where now, if it is clear that you are in the throes of a labor dispute, that immigration enforcement supposedly should not be used, should not allow itself to be used by a boss to crush organizing. And so there was actually a letter that was sent out from ICE suspending enforcement. After that letter went out, Within about 24 hours, the company fired 70 of these workers who by then had gone on strike. The National Labor Relations Board later concluded that the company had not broken the law with most of those firings, that while some particular firings were illegal, firing all of those immigrant workers after they went on strike and after immigration enforcement had said, we're suspending enforcement here, still did not qualify as union busting. You have a feud between two unions where the UFCW, a local union of the UFCW, presumably on the grounds that they would generally expect to represent these pizza workers rather than an independent union that was expected to affiliate with the steel workers. They got a handful of workers on a petition and got a petition submitted to the labor board to put themselves also on the ballot, which some of the activists allege ultimately helped the company because it led to the labor board delaying the election. Delaying the election, meanwhile, meant more strike breakers and fewer strikers potentially being part of the election. Eventually, the alt-labor group, VOSIS, along with the union partner, the USW, stopped saying that they wanted an election and instead started saying they wanted the labor board based on the mass firings and all of the forms of intimidation going on there instead to just order the company to bargain with the workers and skip the election, which legally can happen, although generally doesn't. That did not happen. As I said, the labor board didn't even agree that the mass firing of the workers had entirely been illegal. You have a consumer boycott campaign around the country where you have student activists in Wisconsin trying to get Palermo's off of their campus. You have activism targeting Costco, a company that trades in part on a progressive brand to try to get Costco to put pressure on Palermo's. And so between the immigration issues, the partnership between a union and a workers' center, the nasty fight between two unions that ultimately may have made the boss much stronger the use of the strike, the failure of the labor board in the eyes of the workers to actually punish union busting, the reliance on this community campaign and tactics aimed at the public and the media like this march, the boycott. You have so many of the strains that we see in labor right now and a story which continues to develop but so far does not appear to be close to any kind of satisfying resolution for these workers who've now been on strike for a year. That's uh, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> we will, I'm sure, have more on Palermo's in the future. Um, so from a couple hundred workers to an even smaller story with about 20-something workers here in New York, um, this week I reported four in these times about the labor campaign at an upscale deli in New York City called Dishes. Um, this goes back to... A campaign at a bakery called Hot and Crusty, don't giggle, um, that 
really sort of touched off a moment in this city of community, specifically Occupy Wall Street involvement with a worker center led labor campaign. The hot and crusty story is possibly known to some of you who are belabored listeners. Um, the Laundry Workers Center here in New York got involved with helping the um, almost all immigrant workers at Hot and Crusty, who eventually won not only union recognition, but won a hiring hall, which won a say over who gets hired and, and fired at this bakery, which is sort of amazing. And the dishes workers found out about this campaign and were not only impressed with the wins, but impressed with the way that the community came together for this small group of workers at this one location in, you know, New York City. So the workers at Dishes are now fighting for better treatment, but also um, against wage theft. More about wage theft in just a few minutes. They are alleging there's a lawsuit, um, a class action lawsuit that alleges wage theft going back years, unpaid overtime. The workers are complaining of retaliation. Some of them have been fired for complaining about their conditions. And this has been supported by, again, by the Laundry Workers Center, which is all volunteer run um, and supported by an Occupy Wall Street affiliated group, 99 Pickets, which is basically a labor solidarity group that came out of Occupy Wall Street and specifically came out of the organizing around May Day last year. Um, and this year on May Day, the Immigrant Rights March um, stopped by dishes along with several other locations in the city to support the workers that are inside struggling for their rights. So I have a story on that that is up at In These Times. You can read more about it there. And once again, we will keep up with that story as well. This week, along with the Walmart shareholder meeting on Friday, which we'll be talking more about next week on Thursday, was a global day of action targeting McDonald's. This is the continuation of a story I wrote about for the nation. These McDonald's J-1 guest worker students who were brought here on a State Department program ostensibly designed for educational and cultural exchange ended up allegedly with workers living in the boss's basement paying rent and sometimes getting $0 checks once the rent was deducted, along with the substandard living conditions, having substandard working conditions, including sometimes working over 20 hours consecutively. These workers went out on strike, and then when their time in the U.S. ended a couple months ago, faced a challenge that we often see as a running about for dissent with these guest worker campaigns, which is, well, how do you keep the heat on the company when they know that those particular workers generally are not going to be in the country after a few months. So this is an attempt. We're recording prior, giving away once again the secret of the podcast. Shh, don't tell. We're recording prior to this event at press time for the Belabored podcast. There are actions planned in 30 countries around the world and on every continent except Antarctica. Where There's no McDonald's in Antarctica yet? You know, I don't know whether there is one, but there is not an anti-McDonald's protest planned at this time that we know of for Thursday. So if you are listening in Antarctica and get an advanced copy of the podcast and plan a protest against McDonald's in Antarctica, then we will mention that next week. But what we will see is yet another example of how 
in order to have traction against many of these companies, be they brand name companies like a Walmart or a McDonald's or companies that we often haven't heard of in the United States, but are major players like Toll, this logistics group based in Australia that the Teamsters have had some important victories against through international solidarity in California, you need to find a way to go international. And as we've discussed in several past episodes of the Belabored Podcast, in a long-term campaign, you need to find ways to escalate. So we'll be watching to see how they manage to do it and what it leads to next and whether, in fact, they can force bigger changes from McDonald's than just severing the relationship with a single franchisee. Yes. So now this week we are going to start off a new recurring feature on new feature, new feature on Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. We asked you last week to send us some questions for explainers. Is there a complicated term that you hear us or you see other people in the labor movement or labor journalists using that you don't quite understand, that you'd like to know more about, um, that you would love to hear some experts discuss? Um, we would love to do more of these coming up. You can tweet them at us at hashtag belabored. Send them to us. Email, snail mail, however you'd like to do it. Passenger um, pigeon. Passenger pigeon. Um, so this week we're going to discuss, um, suggested by Pat Crowley via Twitter, um, the question of wage theft. So Josh, what is wage theft? What are some examples of wage theft? So wage theft is the crime of not paying. And unfortunately, in the United States, it's often also the crime you don't pay for if you're the boss. Wage theft is an umbrella term to refer to any of the times when your boss legally owes you some kind of compensation and does not pay it. So examples include paying your workers lower than the legally required minimum wage, having people work overtime and either not paying them during that time or not paying them a legally required overtime rate, having people work off the clock. So for example, having cashiers be required to count up their bank, count up the money for the day after they've clocked out, or having workers required to do setup work of any kind before they actually clock in, or having people work through their lunch break but still deducting the lunch break from what you pay them for, or paying workers at the tipped minimum wage rate. Longtime belabored listeners will remember that the tipped workers in the United States generally can be paid just over $2 an hour legally. It hasn't changed in 20 years, two thirteen an hour. But if you are a tipped worker and your boss has you wash dishes, say, for half an hour and still pays you $2.13, that's wage theft. Or scrape gum off the underside of your tables like one of my bosses had us do once upon a time. Or if your boss has you make deliveries, say you're delivering a pizza and you're not reimbursed for the cost of the gasoline and so on in the way that you're supposed to be, also wage theft. 
Or if you are a tipped employee and they happen to pool your tips or take some of your tips and withhold them, as we talked about with Jake Bloomgart recently, um, if you don't pass a test, they pocket some of your tips. Yes, that was an interesting intersection of high-stakes testing and wage theft. (laughs) Yes. Because we only connect on Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. So these are all forms of wage theft. There are others. Simply lying about what hours your employees worked, not paying them the rate that they're supposed to be paid for something. Again, what makes it wage theft, as activists and advocates understand it, is that we're not even talking about what you deserve by right, what you deserve by how hard you worked, what you deserve by what the cost of living is. We're talking about what you deserve in the narrow legalistic sense of what you have an agreement with your boss or a law demanding that you be compensated. When you do not get what your boss is required to pay you, activists have come to call this wage theft. So, Sarah, if this is illegal, why does it happen so much? I mean, the answer to that is the answer to so many things that we discuss on this podcast. As I, you know, Jared Bernstein said on a panel not too long ago, it's a five-letter word called power. In this case, which is coupled with information, right? A lot of workers don't know that this is illegal. A lot of people don't have any idea that this is illegal, that this is actually a crime. Um, For instance, the story that we talked about last week, um, the piece that I wrote about that company City Bike, the workers had no idea that according to the contract that this company, um, or rather this was in Capital Bike Share, but it's the same parent company, Alta Bicycle Share. They had no idea that according to the deal with the government of Washington, D.C., they were required to be paid the prevailing wage under law. This is another way that employers can steal your wages. They were required by law and by the contract to be paid fourteen forty three an hour plus benefits. But they didn't know that, and nobody told them that, until one of them did some research and found and read the contract and found that he had been being systematically denied his pay. And so the next question, of course, is then, you know, when he found out that he was losing his wages, what happened then? Well, a long, protracted wait for the National Labor Relations Board to do something. And meanwhile, this worker had left the job. Um, It's hard, even though these things are definitely illegal, to actually win anything. Um, More often than not, you are more likely to get some compensation with action in the workplace. You're more likely to be able to win your back wages or win decent pay by organizing and having a union help you out than you are bringing a lawsuit or um, taking it to the NLRB. There was a quite striking statistic in one of the reports that came out in the past few years about wage theft, which said that the ratio of Department of Labor enforcement agents to workers has declined from one agent for every 11,000 workers in 1941 to, in the past few years, one for every 141,000. So we went from 11,000 to 141,000 workers per enforcement agent at the Department of Labor. There's your big government. (laughs) Where is it when you go looking for it? Right? So... 
Sarah, why does this phrase, wage theft, because, of course, often it's cool to talk about messaging, talk about magic words as a salvation for changing politics. But in this case, why is it that calling it wage theft actually has been tied to a change in how these issues get addressed or the extent to which they get addressed? I mean, I don't believe in magic words, I should say, but I do as a journalist, as somebody who has spent a lot of time reading wonky communications theory, think that how we talk about things matters. It matters a lot. Um, Also, understanding these terms, which is why we're spending the majority of today's podcast talking about this term, matters. In this case, when you say somebody's being underpaid, that can mean two things, right? You, when you say you're being underpaid, you, you can mean, well, the workers at McDonald's who make the legal minimum wage are being underpaid. They should make $15 an hour, right? That is one use of the term underpaid. But you could also mean those workers, what were the numbers again? That some 80% of fast food workers in New York City have complained of actual wage theft, which means not only are they making $7.25 an hour, but they're making less than $7.25 an hour because they're not being paid for all the hours that they work. Um, And that is a different thing than just saying that you're underpaid. Saying that it is theft is a different process. It actually, you know, it makes people realize, oh, this isn't just like you're not being paid for your time. This is actually the boss stealing something from you. I commented before we got started recording that this is, you know, in some ways it's a really Marxist sort of idea of the boss is taking extra value from you, even on top of what you're getting for the wage. And there's all, you know, um, I'm not going to go into the theory of surplus value any more than that. Sorry, Marxists. Um, We can talk about this another time. But The boss is actually taking something from you when they make you work without pay or without the legally required amount of pay. We can say and we can expand that concept to talk about whether something is also being taken from you when you are being forced to work for very, very little pay, but that is still legal. But that saying wage theft makes it clear that this is illegal, makes it clear that something is being taken away from you, that this is something that workers are entitled to. And yeah, it has certainly it came out of the rise in the worker center movement, certainly. And I think it has had an effect about how we talk about all these issues. When we look at, for instance, there's another term that a lot of people in the labor movement use that is a giant framing victory for the other side. We talk about right to work laws. Um, and maybe in the future, we'll have a discussion about right to work laws. But in that case, the term has been entered the discourse and has so thoroughly taken over how we think about this that even those of us who know that right-to-work laws are not in any way, shape, or form about giving people the right to work, we still have to use that frame in order to talk about it. And that has had a huge influence on how, on the success of getting those laws passed. And when we see laws being passed, like here in New York City, a wage theft law that uses the term wage theft Nobody wants to say that they're for wage theft. I think wage theft is also an interesting term because it appeals to what some people would think of as a conservative set of frames in politics, right. this law and order mentality that someone is being caught red-handed. Right? When, we often talk about the corporate criminals who you never see on a show like Cops getting dragged <laughs> away in handcuffs. No perp walks for Jamie Dimon. But there is this idea that 
were not... Now, of course, in reality, the same activists are often talking about living wages and so on. But in right. that moment when you say wage theft, you're not debating what someone deserves in a right. moral sense. You're specifically talking about the idea that you that there is a breach of contract and that there is a violation in the form of a theft of something that is owed to you and you weren't paid. And that is certainly a, a concept that has seemed to have broad resonance. Right. I think that's part of why people keep talking about it. Yeah. Michelle Bachman aside, we have accepted in this country that there is a certain minimum amount of pay that you should get for your work. Um, and when you do not get that, people, again, Michelle Bachman and you know Newt Gingrich aside, most people have accepted that that is the law of the land and that is how it should be. So... In terms of the rise of talk about wage theft and the activism, as we mentioned, around it, um, why has that blown up over just the past several years? So I'd say it's happened in part because we've seen a strategy of organizing around wage theft adopted by various progressives and folks in the, the larger labor movement and in and around the labor movement because, as we say, it has resonance, because it is something that typifies the experience of working non-union in the United States, and most people who are working in the United States are working non-union. Uh, Kim Bobo of Interfaith Worker Justice has played a crucial role in popularizing and drawing attention to the term, including in a book that she released in 2008 with the New Press and again re-released in 2011. We've also seen that Activism and conversation around wage theft has risen in tandem with the rise of worker center organizing and other kinds of alternative non-union labor organizing. Because if you work in a restaurant, if you work in almost any non-union environment in the United States, there is a tremendous likelihood that your boss doesn't always pay you everything under the law that they're supposed to. So when I was reporting for the American Prospect about alt-labor and the work of the Restaurant Opportunities Center, I talked to one rock leader who said, well, we only go after companies that are alleged to have broken the law, to have gone below the legal minimum. Yeah. I talked to another leader who said, basically any company that we talk to workers from... <laughs> has been breaking the law sometimes and going below the legal minimum. Right. And so when you want to get a foothold against these companies, it is overwhelmingly likely that if you look hard enough, whether you're talking about a Walmart-contracted warehouse or you're talking about a bike share program, that you can find examples where the law has been broken. And since, for better or for worse... The initial activism of these alt-labor groups, groups that aren't unions but are organizing and mobilizing workers, often is about trying to get the standards up to the legal minimum, stepping in and doing what those non-existent Department of Labor inspectors are not doing. Wage theft becomes a natural rallying point, both because it's part of the lived daily experience of many workers and because when you can point to a company as a lawbreaker, that has a kind of traction with consumers and with politicians and with the media that just saying a company treats people unfairly doesn't always. Sadly, talking about the law still trumps talking about justice in this country, and we see that in a lot of other places too, but... Um... <laughs> We'll solve that problem on the next podcast. Yes, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, I think that watching these different groups, Rock, for instance, they've been very good at sort of pointing out that a company that is doing you wrong in one way is probably doing it in other ways, too. Um, Rock is very good at, say, pointing out that companies that are shafting their workers are also usually not the best about sticking to other laws, like, say, food safety regulations. So we've watched a lot of the victories of these campaigns turn into legislation, right? Turn into city and state legislation that hopefully allows for better enforcement, more enforcement, any enforcement of the law that already exists. So what are some of the ways that people are fighting wage theft in the workplace, through the law, through politics? Um, Give us some examples, Josh. So we find that wage theft is something you can come at from several angles. And what increasingly defines both union campaigns these days in an atmosphere of a totally broken, creaky, craven legal system and also (laughs) non-union alt-labor organizing is the need for a comprehensive campaign that has several prongs. So wage theft is something that workers can go after in the workplace by going together and confronting the boss through various kinds of industrial activism, sometimes tied with the threat of taking the campaign elsewhere. We've seen groups, whether it's rock, whether it's groups organizing warehouse workers, that take wage theft as something that they can organize around at work and take as allegations to the boss, and also as something that they can pursue through the law and through the political system. Jake Bloomgart, a past belabored podcast guest, and friend of Belabored in Descent Magazine, reported on the case of a grocery store where workers teamed up with New York Communities for Change and an affiliate of RWDSU, part of the UFCW in New York, and found so many allegations of wage theft and pursued a legal case that, according to the organizers, had such potential liability for the company that the company could have gone out of business. And in the end, there was a de facto settlement where the company agreed to collective bargaining with the workers, which, as we know, longtime listeners of the Belabored podcast will know, is no small thing. Even if you can prove on paper that the majority of the workers want a union, getting a company to actually negotiate in good faith with the (laughs) workers is not something that happens just because the workers signed a petition or want a union. You have to somehow break the company's will to crush you, either by bribing the company or by building up enough pressure that they think it's not worth it to fight with you. So wage theft in some cases has been part of that. We've also seen these lawsuits as aspects of larger campaigns that can lead to victories that bring the company up, at least for the moment, or at least in that case, to the level of legal compliance, but also beyond it. So, for example, the Restaurant Opportunity Center will go after a company around allegations of wage theft, but come away with a settlement when you combine the law with activism involving customers, doing actions outside the store, and so on, will come away with a settlement that includes things like paid sick days that are not generally required by law in the United States. Then there are efforts to change the law, and one of the most significant victories for anti-wage theft advocates in this area recently, I wrote about at Salon, was a law passed in Chicago 
by the city council and signed off on by Mayor Rahm Emanuel. No great friend of organized labor. Or, <laughs> or non-organized labor. <laughs> and this was a law which acted to make it easier for companies to lose their business licenses for repeated allegations of wage theft. Because, again, we've seen that this crime of not paying your workers is often a crime you don't pay for. It's often a crime you get away with. And so, in many cases, we see the same groups organizing around wage theft on the shop floor, pursuing it through the legal system, and also getting involved in politics to change the law, whether at the statewide level, as in New York, which the Progressive States Network ruled in a report to have the country's best statewide wage theft law, or at the which city Which is also level. a fairly new law in the past couple of years. Yeah. The state's law. New York state's law. Yeah, that followed a report a few years ago, which had estimated that workers in New York lost over a billion dollars a year to wage theft. But even with those laws, we see that, again, like the study that we mentioned just a little bit while back, that... Fast food workers, for instance, are still losing millions of dollars a year to wage theft, even with New York having one of the best laws in the country. Um, So we still have quite a ways to go with some of this. And the fast food case is another one where that study, which was put forward by Fast Food Forward, the group we've discussed on the podcast before, where there's significant backing from the Service Employees International Union, there's organizing being done with key leadership from New York Communities for Change, that campaign is clearly using wage theft, using their ability to bring forward allegations of wage theft, including this poll in which 84% of workers said they'd experienced it in the industry in the past year. Those allegations are clearly part of a larger comprehensive campaign, as is having gotten the New York Attorney General to subpoena a fast food company by bringing together this research. That's part of a campaign that involves strikes but is broader than strikes, as it will need to be if they're going to have sufficient leverage against these companies. Right. Speaking of which, (laughs) so how does wage theft, how does the fight around wage theft fit into the broader question of where the labor movement is, where the labor movement is going now? I mean, I think you just mentioned a really good example of it, right? Which is that New York Communities for Change, which is a local group here, and full disclosure, my roommate works for New York Communities for Change, is running campaigns on wage theft in many, in multiple industries, um, that they've gotten very good at this, along with another New York group, um, Make the Road. And they're bringing that to a campaign that is, again, backed by a larger union that is calling for a significant raise for these workers and is calling for union recognition. So in that case, it's one part of a broader campaign, again, that is explicitly calling for union recognition. I think broadly, bringing to light the the giant problem that is wage theft shows just how bad working in America in 2013 actually is, um, and just how little power working people actually have, which is not a cheery thing, right? On the one hand, we need to convince people that there's a problem. On the other hand, you need to actually be able to convince people that they can change it. And so some of these wage theft wins are a really good way to bring momentum 
to your campaign, to your city for workers to say that, you know, Rahm Emanuel, who loves union busting, would sign an ordinance that would make it easier to lose a business license. Rahm Emanuel loves business and loves union busting. Once again, um, take it from Belabored and Karen Lewis on episode one. But Rahm Emanuel would sign a law saying that, hey, wage theft, not so great. Um, That's a win that, again, provided momentum for the fast food workers campaign there, other low-wage worker organizing. And one other thing that I think is really important to talk about is that the talk of wage theft rose among this sort of worker center movement, and it happens in sectors that are very much ignored by the organized union movement, right? So when we talk about fast food organizing and we talk about the fact that this is only really happening for the first time in 2013, um, this is also an industry where wage theft is rampant. Restaurant work, which is largely non-union, front of the house and back of the house, whether we're talking about waiters or dishwashers, all of them report wage theft. Um, These are sectors of the economy where there is very little organized worker power. And drawing some attention to just how bad it is in these places, some of which, I mean, we talk about fast food jobs. Most people know that fast food jobs pay very little and are not terribly pleasant jobs. But a lot of people used to think, and I used to work in restaurants. I worked in sort of casual dining restaurants. I worked in fine dining restaurants. Um, When I was younger, my dad owned restaurants. Um, I have grown up in the restaurant industry. A lot of people think of restaurants as being a fairly good job, that waiting tables is a good way to make cash and support yourself. And that can be very true. When I lived in New Orleans, I could support myself very nicely on what I made waiting tables. That said, I wish I'd known about wage theft back when I was waiting tables in New Orleans, because I had plenty of people who withheld paychecks and pooled tips and made us tip out people that didn't really need to be legally tipped out because they were making better wages than we were. Or any number of other things. And so drawing attention to this specific problem, um, again, it can shine a light on all sorts of other problems within those industries. And it's drawing attention to a part of the workforce that has been left out of the the labor movement as we sort of narrowly understand it. On that note, Our thanks again to Pat Crowley for suggesting this topic. And this is proof that if you suggest a topic, we might just pick it and mention you on the Belabored podcast of Descent Magazine. Tweet at us with your next suggestions at hashtag Belabored. Please do. We turn now to what long-time nine-week, nine-week listeners will wow, know. Wow, guys. Is a segment we call, ARG! I wish I had written that. <laughs> I wish I could ARG as well as Josh can. Well, speaking of jealousy, Sarah, <laughs> this week, if you were to fly to the moon powered just by sheer jealous, envious jealousy <laughs> at... Something that was written by a person not yourself. What would that thing be? So I read this piece a week ago, and I reread it yesterday, and I want to reread it every day and make everybody who works in journalism read it every day until we actually do something about it. 
Um, it's a piece at The Nation, and it is called How to Fix Journalism's Class and Color Crisis, and it is by Farai Chidea, who I first got to know because her and her former NPR program used to be on at night when I was getting out of grad school. So Farai and journalism have been linked in my brain for quite a while. But this story is about how journalism is becoming, even though it's pretty low paid, an elite profession, and it is a very white profession. And part of the story is about unpaid internships or barely paid internships, about needing to write for free in order to get quote-unquote exposure, things that you can't do if you don't already have money. It's a culture of networking, which means that if you go to the right school, if you go to Columbia Journalism School, you have an easier time getting in the door at different places because your professors already know them. And for instance, once again, I will tell you a personal story. Josh and I actually both were interns at The Nation magazine, which published this piece. And I don't think either of us would have the career we do without the connections we made there. It was an invaluable experience. I made wonderful friends and have worked with some amazing editors. Um, thank you, Richard, Betsy, Emily, Katrina. We love it. But that internship pays just a small stipend. I was not able to do unpaid internships when I was an undergrad because I was, as I just mentioned earlier, waiting tables. I was able to do that internship for fairly not much money when I was an adult after graduate school who had saved up a bunch of money. And, you know, when I am what passes for a working class reporter in journalism, this is sort of a problem. As I mentioned before, my parents own small businesses. I'm not really representative of what most people in this country are living on and living with. And this is a, a question, it matters. It matters because of simple fairness. We don't want to believe that journalism is open only to people who come from money and went to Ivy League schools. Um, but it also matters because of the stories that we choose to tell. People who don't have any experience working in a fast food restaurant are less likely to want to tell stories about fast food restaurants. That doesn't mean that none of them will. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't do a good job being a white person from a well-off background covering stories from, of people who are very different from you. It matters because of who we think of as our audience. When we come from a well-off background versus when we come from a working class background, it matters who we think we're talking to and how we do talk to them when we cover their stories. So I want everybody in journalism, again, to read this story and read it again and really think about how we change this. It's an outstanding piece. I'm about to do something I don't think we've ever done on the Belabored podcast, which is make someone a two-time honoree in the ARG. I wish I had written that We segment. should start keeping tabs and give an award at the end of the year. Very exciting. <laughs> Don't miss an episode. Keep your scoreboard at home. This person who wrote this article also, also happens to have worked at Arise Chicago, one of the key groups, key workers' centers in spearheading the wage theft activism in Chicago that we were talking about. He is friend of the podcast, Micah Utrecht, and he wrote a really beautiful essay that is both personal and quite insightful called Tenure Strike at Chicago's Congress Hotel Ends in Defeat but Leaves a Legacy. 
It was for In These Times. It's about the end of the Congress hotel strike, a strike by a local of full disclosure, my former employer, Unite Here. And this strike in some ways is a parallel to one of the great strikes in Unite Here history, which was the strike at the Frontier Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, a strike that went on for several years and ended in victory, actually by driving the company that was set on beating the union out of business. And that strike ended in victory at the Frontier and played a crucial role in paving the way to win good union contracts at virtually all of the casinos on the Strip in Las Vegas. The Congress hotel strike ended differently. It ended in what, in any literal narrow sense, was a defeat. This company, after 10 years, was able to get away with refusing the wage and benefit demands that all of the other union hotels in Chicago had agreed to. The what few number of workers return to work, if any do, will be going back to work with essentially the conditions that they turned down 10 years ago. So Micah talks in this piece about why this strike did not beat the Congress Hotel, the particulars of the situation, the isolation and the ideology of the boss who has not been to Chicago since before the strike, his willingness to lose money that made it very difficult to actually bring him back to the table and ultimately made it something that the union decided was no longer worth trying to do. At the same time, he talks about the benefit that came from this strike in that most hotel owners, while they don't want to concede power or money to their workers, are less willing to have their reputation smeared, to be picketed by local politicians like Barack Obama, to lose <laughs> revenue, to have their customers repeatedly chased in aggressive and sometimes amusing ways by activists. Micah gives the example of a meeting that took place in a glass building of a group that was going to be using the Congress Hotel, where the union actually paid for a small blimp to fly by the glass building with a message about the picket line. He gives an example about strikers sending messages and picketing and miming, pretending to put down a trip line at the site of a marathon uh, that a group was participating in that was going to be crossing the picket line. And Micah lays out how going all out for years and years against this hotel did play a positive role for the union in convincing other hotels that they were serious and that a fight with them was not a fight that you wanted to be in. But at the same time, he's clear-eyed about the fact that this was a defeat and that these workers went out on strike, sacrificed a great deal, and didn't get to have that moment when they walk in head high with a concrete victory where they made the company say yes to all the things they'd said no to. The story also features the story of a young Micah Utrecht accidentally crossing the picket line when he did not know that the hotel was boycotted. So it's a beautiful essay. Please read it. It's at In These Times. That brings us to the end of episode nine. Folks who are in New York this weekend, I believe, can catch both Sarah and myself impaneled at Left Forum. Indeed you can. Um, we will both be there on Sunday, I believe. 
Yes. Uh, talking, I will be talking with a group of organizers, including organizers from New York Communities for Change, from Domestic Workers United, from um, MORE, a caucus within the United Federation of Teachers, um, about gender and organizing. I will be on a panel with activists and advocates, including a couple activist fast food workers, talking about low-wage worker organizing that we've seen over the past year. And we will be back with you next week. I'll share what did or didn't happen on my trip to Arkansas. And in the meantime, tweet at us, rate us on iTunes, share your thoughts, recommend some things we should explain, share some stories that we should be telling and interrogating, and please share the podcast with a friend. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Natasha Lewis, to Descent Magazine for hosting us, to Sarah Leonard, our executive producer, and to all of you for listening. See you next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, if I cannot.